It's very difficult for Manchester United to stop that. What do you want them to do? Come out and deny every single link. With 22 links to different players on one day last week alone. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Now we're going to turn our attention to the Sunday papers, so I'll run you through the back pages first of all. And where are we here? A sun sport yesterday in uh, the dubs there in the top corner. Dubs pair in semi-scare. Desi's aces uh, busted, so he's revealed that Connick Allen and James McCarthy in a race against time to be fit for the All-Ireland semi-final on July 10th. Uh, he refused Farrell to reveal the seriousness of the issues, but admits they're crunch a uh, last four clash, says Jason Byrne here against Kerry Armeo, might come too soon for the pair. Uh, beneath that, you'll see a picture of Wayne Rooney looking like he's at school. So, class Rune. Uh, Waza needs badges for top job. Obviously, you might have seen Wayne Rooney uh, left Derby on Friday, which surprised everybody at the club. But uh, he's going to spend his time now completing his pro licence. That is the plan for Wayne Rooney in the short term. We have the Sunday Times... And it's a shot yesterday of uh, Cork's Paul Ring trying to block Sean Bugler at Crow Park. Semi-detached, Dublin too strong for Cork, while Derry brush aside Clare to reach All-Ireland Senior Football Championship last four. Beneath that, Jonathan Northcroft has Ten Hag uh, digging in to land 70 million to Young. This is Manchester United very much at the insistence of their new manager pushing the boat out to get to Young. Barcelona want... 80 million uh, euro or so or 85 million United are going with 80 million which uh, it seems will get the job done so it seems 80 million euro is good enough for Barcelona so that's the priority for Manchester United at the moment and then David Walsh here in the front page Ryder Cup exclusion for Saudi golf rebels so it does seem as if if, uh, the DP World Tour are not too far away from banning the Live Golf DB World players from Ryder Cup action they uh, banned them initially for a tournament or two and there was a £100,000 fine but it seems that as the uh, Live Golf events continue and the European participation continues in those events the uh, char- the uh, moves against them will um, uh, grow and, and culminate in Ryder Cup ban maybe Mail on Sunday Deja Blue ominously familiar feeling for Dublin's rivals as Farrell's men crank it up in Croker they really were in third gear to be honest Dublin against uh, Cork as we mentioned already 21 points to 10 we have the front page of the Sunday Independent. Again, Kicking Kings, Rocks, Freeze, see Dublin into semis. Claire crushed by Classy Derry. That's Dermot Crow on the front page of the Sunday Independent. Sunday World. Again, it's Rock Stars, Dean and Dubs Cruise to victory against Rebels in Croker. 21 points to 10, the final score there. And on the front page of the Sunday Independent main section, we have Mark Ty, formerly of the Sunday Times, now with the Sunday Independent. And this is John Delaney once again on the front page of uh, main section revealed the emails Delaney's attempting to conceal which we might start with in just a moment very happy to say Cleena Foley journalist and <coughs> broadcaster here in studio you're very welcome you too. and Tommy Martin of Virgin Media Television and the Irish Examiner with us as well Tommy great to have you in thanks so Good in shorts as well the summer feeling <laughs> yeah, why not summer sh- shorts and rain gear I think you, uh, you don't know what I'm wearing under this desk though, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so fashion. John Delaney on the front page of the main section revealed the emails Delaney is attempting to conceal and this is Mark Ty here. We are now in the midst of a two and a half year legal battle between the Office of the Director of Corporate Enforcement and John Delaney. And really what's happening at the moment is legal argument over 
emails and whether or not these should be taken into evidence. So 270,000 emails have been seized. Can you imagine the workload here to go through 270,000 emails? So it seems there is contention over 1,123 of those emails and a small number as well of hard documents over which John Delaney has maintained a claim of legal privilege. So, in effect, the documents John Delaney is seeking to shield include hundreds of emails with former FAI executives Ray Walsh and Carl Heffernan. And uh, court filings show Mr Delaney is claiming he was advised in some of these emails on family law matters, on the purchase of a one million euro house in Ockram, County Wicklow. And his argument is that many of the mails are linked, for instance, to his divorce case, which could return to court. So this upholds his litigation privilege claims that these emails and I'm no lawyer but these emails could be used again in court down the line therefore they remain privileged and they should not be part of the ODCE investigation and in effect the judge has to decide whether uh, John Delaney is correct in this matter or the OCDE do have access to these 1,123 emails that seems to be it in essence Yeah. Yeah, but it was as as journalists. I think what struck us about it was because he he lists um, seventy eight of the legal cases. But and true to sports journalists, I think we all had a different number. I, I reckon it was forty one. Somebody else said thirty eight. But of the seventy eight cases, they're nearly all cases involving media. And I know um, people used to always argue or say, you know, why did a lot of this stuff not come out before? But this probably does reflect the level of. Um, cases and and legal threats that were going on all the time for quite an extended period. So it'd be fascinating if they do come out eventually. Um, the one thing that interested me in this, and obviously Mark Ty is a big is a big signing for the Sunday Indo. <laughs> he's like a premiership signing for him, isn't he, really, given all the work that he's done on this. Um, but I, what interests me is that he says that Delaney now runs a consultancy business, Delay Limited, in London, um, and is also trying to shield a number of emails with Finance One, a financial advisory firm that advised on, quote, refinance of personal business, a property purchase and a company called Spinel Crest. So it's that sort of, you know, granular detail that Mark High um, did so brilliantly and made that book so such you know, forensic uh, investigation, such a brilliant, but a brilliant read at the same time. But this is very much mired in, in legal legalese. Yeah. And, and say a lot to come. And who knows how significant these 1,123 yeah, yeah. emails are. So John Delaney is claiming, for instance, that in some of these disputes, there is contention between the FAI and John Delaney as to who's responsible for the fees, for instance. So even though some of these cases may be uh, settled, his claim is they are still potentially alive and therefore a litigation privilege exists. But you do read through a lot of the 78 cases he's listed and it's John Delaney versus Goal.com 2016-17, John Delaney versus The Journal 2016, John Delaney versus The Examiner 2016, versus Independent Newspapers 2016, versus The Daily Mail 2016, Sports Joe 2016, The Limerick Post, uh, Prime Time in 2013, Newspapers, uh, Independent Newspapers 2013, Daily Mail and Irish Times 2014, Irish Times 2011, Morning Ireland of RTE. Uh, John Delaney, Independent Newspapers again, 15. The Journal, 16. You Boys in Green in 2014. The Waterford Local uh, Radio Station, 2016. The Sun, Balls.ie. More Sunday Independent Investigations. Evening Herald, 2012. Sunday Times, 13. Sunday Times, 16. John Delaney, 
versus Independent Newspapers 2016, The Irish Daily Star 11, Sports News Ireland 2011, Irish Daily Star 14, Irish Daily Mail 2014. I could keep going. Mm. I'm, I'm labouring the point slightly, but it is an extraordinary uh, litany. If they say that uh, legal actions are the the, uh, the Oscars of our Oscars. trade uh, in the media, this is like the, the glitziest uh, award ceremony you're, you're ever likely to see because of the, the, the amount of uh, media organisations that are that are listed there. Um, so I suppose the, the, you know, the couple of things that's stand out obviously he's um, this is all in the hands of Justice Leone Reynolds who will uh, make the decision as to whether to come down in favour of John Delaney that these emails should be um, not included in the ODCE's uh, uh, investigation because of their links to ongoing legal cases and and family law um, situations that that may become uh, active again. Um, The other thing is is that a lot of them um, are correspondence involving uh, FAI staff members Mm. uh, Rhea Walsh, who became the interim CEO, um, and Carl Heffernan, who was a, com- a commercial director. And it kind of underlines, um, whether rightly or wrongly, whether the entanglement of FAI personnel uh, in Delaney's own uh, business and, and legal affairs, whatever the nature of the correspondence uh, uh, was, and, and, and all that will become apparent uh, if the emails are released. But just how the overall point about this and the fact that, you know, Mark Tighe opened and Paul Rowan opened their book with the famous birthday party was that the FAI and John Delaney, you know, in, in Delaney's eyes had come to be seen and certainly with the people around him mm. come to be seen as one and the same. So hence why I guess this is proving so hard to uh, disentangle for the, the ODC and, and the courts. Yeah. Not much more we can say about the situation, but certainly a two and a half year legal tussle and counting is very much the case in that investigation. A lot of golf in the Sunday papers this morning, some very positive and some very much about the live golf situation and how toxic that uh, uh, war really is becoming in many ways. If you're a, a golf fan and you're looking for something which is enjoyable and feel good, then I suppose the win of Matt Fitzpatrick at the US Open last week and Billy Foster is caddy as well is very much to the fore on that front David Walsh chats with Billy Foster who's been a caddy for a very very long time 40 odd years and famously never won a major and uh, some nice anecdotes from Foster down the years yeah, there's there's some. I mean, I think we've said before in here, you know, you you really would love to see a really good book by a caddy. I've always said that's it's one of those books that's really missing something that's really really honest. Um, but it, there's a great line in this. Um, obviously, the, the headline is he treats me, Matt treats me very well as a human being, not just just as a caddy. Um, but it also encompasses obviously the time that he spent with. Um, various other high profile golfers and I just loved um, and Dermot Gillies covers that as well in the in the uh, uh, Sunday Indo mm-hmm. with Garcia and Darren Clark and Ballesteros but there's a great, <laughs> it's a great line from Foster um, he said they were all different different levels of psychopaths you're working for <laughs> <laughs> so you have to adapt because what you say to Sergio Garcia Darren Clark will hate what you say to Darren Lee Westwood won't like so you have to suss it out very quickly and it is a, an intriguing I mean he, he talks here about making the decision about the three wood um, on the 18th tee last week and it going wrong, hits the bunker. And, you know, the insight that he gives is brilliant. He's he's walking down as they leave the tee. He's walking down thinking, why did you open your mouth? Why did you make him, you know, play that? You could have just cost him the US Open mm. and Foster turned around and said, Billy, that was the right decision. Or Fitzpatrick it? said it to him. Yeah, Fitzpatrick yeah, yeah. Said it, was, it, was, it was a three wood. That was now a let's classy touch. That is... He, like yeah. <laughs> in the moment, in that moment, you know, that is an incredible thing. And, and he that's why you can see that. Um, and, and 
Dave Walsh has another piece as well, actually, on Fitzpatrick as well. They're just saying he's he's quite unusual kind of guy. He's very, very straight up, very kind of honest, very decent with people. If you if you didn't like Matt Fitzpatrick after the yeah. the scenes afterwards, you you yeah. you love him even more now as as a person. You know, it's great. It's a great piece. You know, as you say, as Kleena says, with the uh, examples from working with Seve and you know, nineteen ninety five Masters, where you know he called a club wrong and himself and Ballesteros just went absolutely nuclear with each other and the difficult personalities that he's worked with uh, in the past and then that story about last Sunday night but he says the one thing I would take from Fitz is the massive mutual respect we have for each other he's a very polite young man who looks at me and goes well Billy's been there and done it and he shows me a huge amount of respect and I show him the respect he deserves he treats me very well as a human being not just as a caddy you know which seems like wow he treats you as a human being that's is that is that a you know an amazing rarity in, in golfer <laughs> caddy relationships, is. but like it's you know, I mean, maybe it's a small thing to 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 uh, to note as a positive from yeah, Fitzpatrick's point of view. And in terms of Galise's piece, like he he, he does a nice piece, well, but he says and he makes a very good point, and he says, you know, the cha- the forty years of Open Championship, he said it has to be tempered with an awareness of an outstanding career in which ten percent of serious winnings have amounted to very satisfactory earnings. You know what I mean? So they're you know at that level, they're well paid. Mm. But the pressure is is massive, and if you've had the big instance yeah. that he's had, then clearly uh, when it turned right, and just the scenes on the on the and and Zalatoris obviously responded very yeah. well, and Zalatoris' family responded very well. Everything was just it, it just, was just you know, it was nice. one of those moments. That sometimes, sometimes with golf, you kind of go, oh, it's all a bit you know, overly sort of oily and uh, yeah. and and uh, you know, but the, but it was just really nice the way it was yeah. done. You know, and obviously the, the Sky Sports thing. You know, they were conscious of being a British broadcaster. We, we most of us would have been watching it on Sky. That yeah. they kind of did focus a lot on the Billy Foster. I think maybe because they got Foster greenside right away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whereas they were probably <laughs> th- third or fourth in line to get uh, Matt Fitzpatrick. But it was you know they obviously all the guest people working on that coverage have been around the game a long time to know like that. This is great for great for Billy yeah. you know, as well. Like it, on that point in nineteen, I was fascinated by that because it gives you an example of just how difficult it can be a dynamic. So all week Fitzpatrick saw the eighteenth as driver and Foster definitely thought it was three yeah. would you run out of fairway and but it's so it seems the agreement they reached was Foster said, Okay, if you want to hit driver you hit it and we don't want any doubt in your mind when you're hitting the shot, which makes sense. But yeah, then they talked about it before David Walsh says Fitzpatrick hit driver, he played the hole in two over par across the first three days. So then they get to eighteen and that's where Foster says, What do I do here? And he says I stepped up and said, Matt, it is a three wood. It's going to be a nine iron in. Just get it in the fairway, three wood, and then it's a nine iron. And Fitzpatrick says, OK, yeah, three wood. And then hooks it into the bunker, which is more likely to happen with a three wood than with a yeah, driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can imagine Foster thinking, oh, my God, what have I done here? Like, what? A, that's why it was such a classy thing for Fitzpatrick to turn around and say to him, mm. yeah. it's OK, it was a three wood. That was my fault to put it in the bunker. Well, walking up, walking up to the next shot. You're entitled to, to be angry at that point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and obviously this, this, the, the Seve example from the from the Masters yeah, in '95. It's Seve's turned around, and, and Seve's made a mess of the shot, the next shot uh, as well. Yeah. And he's turned around and go like, "That's all your fault because he, that's what yeah. he needed to, to do to to get." <laughs> and it, it kind of uh, like this is such a great piece because it sort of uh, it's a great uh, case study of the caddy golfer relationship because it's kind of like if you think of it, golfers and uh, an individual sports person but the caddy is almost like because he's a part of the golfer's brain 
essentially there. Like you see Jordan Spieth and his caddy in that yeah. sort of relationship. So that's kind of a great example of that's like an internal monologue. They never stop. They yeah, never like stop. an internal it's conversation that, that you going. might have yeah. if you know the other individual sports people have with their own yeah. conflicting views and their own sort of arguments. Will I take a three wheeler? Will I take a driver? But now you've got these two human beings who are essentially the one sort of unit. Yeah. And yet, if something goes wrong, then there's a fracture there yes. and. And well, he's ta- and caddies are tacticians, psychologists, mm. coach. They're a bit of Punch everything. Bags. Punch bags. Well, very post- often on the big occasions. Well, the, yeah. exactly. the postscript to the big argument with Seve is that it seems you know, they've been working together five years at that stage and yeah. Foster on the 18T when Seve is still going on about it. You messed up, but that's all your fault. <laughs> and so he says, I effing heard you, all right? Yeah. <laughs> and then David, David Walsh says, Ballesteros is shocked. <laughs> Playing partner Ray Floyd and caddy Steve Williams stand silently to the side. Uneasy witnesses to an ugly family row. Four days later, Foster received a letter saying his services would no longer be required by Ballesteros. Yeah. <laughs> Five years together, done. I wonder, does it, does it get to a certain point? It always reminds me of uh, a rally drivers. You know, I can't remember. It was a, there was an Irish uh, rally driver um, who had a bad uh, crash at one stage and had worked with his navigator for, for years. But after that, they couldn't work together because there was just that tiny little break of trust. Trust, it's a trust that it, it was yeah. uh, It was in that moment of, of driving. He couldn't be like, well, are you sure about this? Because... Yeah. So I guess maybe it's the same with a caddy golfer, obviously with less uh, serious consequences, but that you can't be sort of questioning, you know, or, or else, you know, certainly the relationship can be can run run its distance if something if something like that happens. Yeah. yeah, I think the only the the only book I can I don't know whether you can remember the Lawrence Donegan four 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 so, yeah, was, was a great say, book, yeah. but when he was with the Journeyman, it was different. But it was still really I thought yeah. very really and interesting. He, I book. suppose he wasn't a career caddy; he was more. Yes, a, he was in it just to write yeah. the book. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Year, yeah. Yeah, 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 We had him on the golf podcast recently, and uh, you know, it was a fairly grizzled, hard living. Mm. caddy fraternity then I think it's changed a lot now they're all professional caddies like you think of Michael Greller on Jordan Speed's bag or yeah. uh, Colin Byrne you know yeah, it'd be yeah, of yeah. a different uh, yeah, vibe I think to, era, these yeah. lads were like 10 to an apartment and just moaning about how much they hated their <laughs> player like my guy's useless yeah. I gotta get rid of him you know this kind of a culture so you're saying all caddies are in but the gym o- now but also the, the Rick Riley book is brilliant that Rick Riley oh, yeah. golf book is brilliant because he has all the caddy lingo of what they use against the golfers as well and what they call them as well so there is that whole grizzle thing going on as still well. yeah I think yeah. I think yeah. honestly the caddies now are very professional yeah yeah. You t- you and, yeah. and it was one of the explanations given by a, an agent I was talking to as to why so many of the caddies get people in their own family or their mm. own circle on the bag is that they look at the fraternity that was there and they don't like the culture yeah actually fairly or otherwise but they have a perception that it wasn't as professional they want to move away from right. that. well considering like Steve Williams is like the highest paid yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he was famous, that's the word in New Zealand like yeah. it has to be a, <laughs> exactly, a professionalism yeah. Yeah. probably kind of like the if you see drive to survive the Formula One drivers have the, the performance coach yeah, yeah. who appears to be just kind of there to sort of spot them in the gym and tell them they're great yeah. when they're you know getting kicked off Mercedes or whatever yeah. is but happening they're kind of just around yeah. Sort of yeah. cheering them up and yeah, but sure that professionalisation of obviously. caddies as well is 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 reflects everything in the sport, doesn't it? Yeah, Do you know, it reflects mm. the science that's brought into golf now, and and he's talking even so much as as well about Fitzpatrick and Fitzpatrick, what he does on the that's an interesting element of it as well. I think what Very Fitzpatrick does on the practice because you would notice when Fitzpatrick walks down a fairway, he's always writing something after a shot. So <laughs> Billy Foster is saying effectively, even in practice. And certainly on the golf course, he notes down every single shot. So uh, Foster says, if you watch him, he'll hit one in the left rough. He'll measure the distance exactly from the middle of the fairway. And he'll say, right, that's 17 yards off the middle. Every detail goes on a spreadsheet and then it spits out the data. And then over the last few weeks, we've changed distances because of the way he's hitting it and so on. So yeah, yeah, I thought it was that's, really uh, they weren't doing that 
10 years ago, Definitely certainly, not. let alone 2030. We'll uh, <laughs> take a short ad break. We're back with more in the papers. We're reviewing the Sunday papers here with Tommy Martin and Kleena Foley. Just on the golfing theme, we were talking touching on that Billy Foster interview with David Walsh before the ad break there and a story which certainly caught your eye Tommy on the front page of the Sunday Times Ryder Cup exclusion for Saudi golf rebels so the sanctions it, it would seem that the DP World Tour will impose on those live golf players are going to incrementally build up very very soon to a Ryder Cup ban and I mean, what's doubly interesting is it seems speculation Henrik Stenson's management team have been in talks with Liv this is the Ryder Cup captain next mm. year yeah, that w- that would be hugely significant. Just um, this story, David Walsh uh, in the Sunday Times, and also uh, James Corrigan has um, a story about it, and a lot of it around. What degree will the uh, Live Tour uh, will the Saudis basically cover the cost of the fines? Um, <clears throat> and that's an interesting one. Um, in the James Corrigan piece, there's a quote from um, um, uh, an agent of one of the the Live players uh, who, who appeared at Centurion to say they had yet to hear from Live because Liv had obviously promised them at the time listen we'll cover any fines you get um, and the quote is we thought Liv would make a big play of this and come straight out and say don't worry we'll handle this uh, the agent said but obviously they haven't and speculating that the, that Liv are going softly softly with the European tour with the DP tour that maybe down the line mm. this you know there's let's not bring out the big guns yet um, and but the, and then the flip side of that is is that there appears to be there's um, a, a line later in that piece uh, Keith Pelly the DP World Tour chief executive has been inundated by players who have stayed loyal asking why the Europe rebels were not treated with similar stringency as the PGA Tour rebels who were obviously uh, indefinitely suspended from from the tour rather than uh, simply um, being, being fined uh, a fine that would likely be paid by by the living in the end so. So the European Tour, um, I guess, are in the position where the people who have stayed loyal are kind of going, "What's going on here? Are you going to come down heavy on these guys? Is this going to, you know, we've 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 stuck with you. We're 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 all in. We believe in this tour. You got to you got to step up here. And what are what are the uh, DP uh, Tour top brass thinking? Are they thinking we don't want to get into a real big war because there might be a you know a detente somewhere down the line where we're all buddies again? So. Mm. I guess that's... But it, the, the, the Ryder Cup one is probably going to be a, a big high-profile story whether there, Stenson, uh, if Stenson joins with the Live Tour. For sure. There is a quote in that Dave Walsh piece on the front page of the Sunday Times where one European Tour official says, should Henrik cross to the other side, I even love the language there. <laughs> the dark side. Dark yeah. side. He will not be captain at next year's Ryder Cup, which would be quite the story. And and, and the, the Corrigan piece as well intimates that, that there is just possibility that with each one each time they play that they'll double up the fines and so therefore as well that's why Liv are probably holding back to see what's going to happen exactly mm. on it so mm. it's uh, unedifying on all sides isn't it really because it's bottom line is about money but it, the bigger the names go over that'll probably well, this raise the big questions usually significant yeah. because I think the Brooks captain oh, the yeah. one on top yeah. of the, the other players now it's sort of real and it's like well this isn't going away and you know and it's getting and I mean Roy McIlroy on the other side as the, the spokesperson, you know, the sort of Luke Skywalker of the uh, <laughs> of the operation. Like he's not holding back on on, on the stuff he's saying. No, you know, he, there's that. I mean, called Brooks duplicitous. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, that quote. Word. I know you tweeted it out today. Um, I read it last night as well about Sergio saying, "Finally, we're getting paid what we're worth." <laughs> he says, "We're golfers. We shouldn't be paid anything. <laughs> we're already paid way too much." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never mind the appearance money. <laughs> uh, one last point just to touch on, and then we'll. Uh, move off the golf but it is right across the uh, pages you have to say this afternoon and 
the attention of the golfing world is going to be on Ireland next week. That is most certainly not because of the Irish Open, which will have zero players ranked in the top 10 at the event. It's because of the JP McManus Prime on the Monday and Tuesday after the Irish Open, which of the players in the top 10 will have nine of them playing. Uh, there's a, a comparison here of uh, how the two fields stack up. So, for instance, majors won by field at the Irish Open four, majors won by the field at the JP McManus Prime 49. A number of major winners at the Irish Open, two. Number of major winners at the JP McManus Pro-Am, 21. So it really is, I mean, it, it's extraordinary. Uh, like there isn't a concentration of talent like it outside of the four majors across the golfing year. And Dennis Walsh looks at one of the more intriguing aspects of the JP McManus Pro-Am, how JP and Tiger created the biggest event in Irish golf. And he's uh, trying to, I suppose, chart the discreet friendship that has animated the McManus Pro-Am I think everybody's quite curious about this Mm. uh, relationship that they have Uh, so for instance your first thought would be money but Dennis Walsh says here of the Pro-Am in 2000 when an Irish tabloid claimed that Tiger was being paid his usual appearance fee of a million dollars to play at the JB McManus Pro-Am the tournament host called the reporter directly and a retraction was published without delay Woods didn't take a cent and when he won the event which was 30,000 pounds at the time he put his winner's cheque back into the pot so what was he doing there and why has he kept coming back asked Dennis Walsh the simple unvarnished answer Dennis has is friendship contact first made in 1998 McManus Dermot Desmond met with Marco Mira Payne Stewart and Woods at the Isleworth Golf Club in Florida persuaded them a few days of Lynx golf in Ireland would be the ideal preparation for the Open once they landed in Shannon they were taken by helicopter to Waterville a few days of golfing, fishing, dining out, drinking late. They loved it so much. A year later, they came back and McManus first invited Woods in 2000 at the 99 Ryder Cup at Brookline. He was assembling a field and according to McManus's account, he raised the possibility of Woods dropping by, not necessarily as a player, but as a guest. Woods could read clearly between the lines. If you're asking me, he said, I'm coming. Neither of them have elaborated on their friendship, but uh, Dennis Walsh points out that Woods married Ellen Nordigan in October 04 at Sandy Lane, which is the resort in Barbados, partly owned by McManus. And uh, it seems... Uh, Far it's more interesting, it was reported, though not confirmed by McManus, because yeah. he doesn't confirm anything, that when he spent 40 million redeveloping Martinstown, his Limerick mansion, that a room was set aside for whenever Woods and Nordigan came to visit. And there are many rooms in that house. I remember seeing a, a plan of it once. <laughs> it's an unusual I, thing, isn't I'm it? I'm not very hard. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing you could say is, you, the one thing you can say about very rich people, and they tend to be men, is uh, if you're that rich and you're that famous and you meet somebody who's equally rich and very discreet and has no reason... Mm. That doesn't to, need anything. Doesn't need anything from you or want anything from you. And I always think that that's probably or why, mm. you know, Woods connected so well with him because here was somebody who was asked him to come along to a thing, do him a favour. It was a charity event, still is, and it has raised, you know, massive, massive amounts. It's total uh, to And that's total million, here, yeah. Yeah, that's the one thing about it. I think it's 140, 140 million raised for yeah. good cause. I think yeah. the last one, in Phenomenal. Ten, last one 10 years ago raised 40. Mm. Yeah. So and they're, they're going to break that. I think there's right. that element of it, isn't there? That like if you if you're that paranoid yeah. as a tiger clearly is, <laughs> given his his life story, um, and you meet somebody who doesn't want anything from you mm. and offers you the hand of friendship and 
you know, the opportunity to go somewhere, you know, and just be yourself and relax. I, I think I think that's yeah. It I think seems there's a, gr- a great piece be because, uh, as you say, it pulls back the curtain on that on that world a bit. I remember being reporting at the the 2010 one and being um, along the fairway watching woods, and it was there's a little. Um, a few lines from that press conference because it was Wood's first uh, appearance outside of the US after right. the scandal. Yeah, yeah. I never forget that press conference that oh. he did before the the pro am. It was he was a, he was a ball of hostility Ox. and uh, <laughs> oh yeah, Ox indeed, yeah. hostility just uh, absolute. You know because every reporter there was told to go there and ask him a question that somehow kind of like you know it was part of the sort of general kicking that that he was getting and and you know there's quotes here one word answers and everything and it was just that that hostile you know angry um whatever yeah all of emotions that he was at that time uh, and then following him on the course uh he, he was waiting to tee off uh, at one of the holes and up ahead of him was um the four ball involving dermot desmond and so Dermot Desmond is obviously playing a shot about 100 yards up ahead, sees Tiger Woods, the two of them walk towards each other and throw their arms open wide and give and the, the biggest hug, you know, back-slapping hug, like, and, and a genuine sort of, um, a genuine expression of emotion or friendship or, you know, great to see you, whatever. There was a whole lot, you know, encountered in that. I was going, what? Like, what is that? Like, what? you know, this is Tiger Woods, you know, this is a guy, like, beyond the stratosphere of, of any very few sports stars are in that sort of realm of you know of significance and, and cultural import like and I've never seen never seen him yeah. you know publicly uh, engage with another human being in that way and like so what is it and like I guess this piece sort of maybe touches behind you know pulls back that curtain and it's just you know that sort of thing of here's some, another rich people who don't want anything from me show me a good time I can you know, relax, and mm. I don't know. I don't know what it was, but it was. It was really. Um, it really hinted at what, at what, what the the weird and really incredible kind of dynamic behind this whole. Uh, this whole yeah, thing I, is. It's, like. it's so odd because I feel Tiger Woods must meet billionaires most weeks of his life yeah. as well. Hank Haney is a podcast Woods his former coach, and he was chatting about the J.P. Mills problem because I was again uh, just you wouldn't think they'd have natural things in common necessarily, or be chatting for hours and end about Limerick Hurley, yes. you know. <laughs> And uh, Haney's pretty forthright and he was saying his sense of it was you get treated so well it's such a good time that's basically the number of it. Yeah mm. but I think I think with J.P. McManus and, and this piece mind you as well does point out mm. which I always think is worth pointing out that for all of his fla- philanthropy he's a tax exile you know and that's all part of, of where he is in mm. his life mm. but there's a discretion about he doesn't talk he doesn't do interviews mm. he doesn't speak to anybody yeah. He really does not engage with media at all. So maybe that's part, that trust, particularly yeah. that, that part for, for Woods you, as You're well, probably right. For the, for the here, golfer yeah. who's named his yacht Privacy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you might value that in a fellow billionaire. <laughs> you would love to listen into a few conversations, though. Yeah. It would be interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, he's going to be there on Monday, Tuesday week. Didn't play the US Open, but he's there at the uh, JP McManus Prom, so that'll be uh, extraordinary, really. And that's on after the Irish Open, which is on this week. That is the golf done and dusted with. So, like I said, lots of it in the papers this afternoon. 
on the rugby front I have that jotted down next uh, there's a huge amount of previewing of Ireland New Zealand yeah, there's I w- massive the Sunday Times go really big really they've big got a seven page mm. special but it's not just on Ireland it's on the tours it's, the it's, tour. well it's also on the it's also on the home nations and where they're going and what's going to happen you know you could be reading about it forever really because you know and there's a little they have all the dates and everything and the yeah. Sunday Times have done that all the papers have but I actually like the Mail on Sundays because I think Rory Keane's piece about it kind of encompasses everything that everybody's asking about the Irish team and about team selections and all the rest and then there's a good piece too by Hugh Farley who would have been down in New Zealand in 20 uh, was it 2012 you know um, and he has kind of a you know good memory good good insight into that particular tour as well but uh, Roy Keane really you know really summarises quite a lot of, of I think what Ireland are going to be facing and the key issues for them you know um, Kieran Frawley's raised um positionally you know the first test is always your best chance to beat them it's all that sort of themes that have uh, is been rehearsed and of course very interesting which paper is it the Sunday Times point out that um, uh, Joe Smith will not be doing any mm. any interviews <laughs> because his contract doesn't the, start yeah, until yeah. after the tour um, and that's an interesting piece as well is that Peter O'Reilly yeah. um, so um, yeah Ireland's black spot is the headline on that as well so that bit might, might interest people as well just talking about Schmidt's place behind in the background and and his I thought the interesting was for his first pr- presentation even Bowden Barrett turned up with a notepad and pen ready to scribble down el- every relevant details or or, pay, or perhaps afraid to miss a detail yeah Schmidt's reputation as a martinet clearly preceded him but he's obviously it's going to be a sensitive area I'd say yeah he said uh, Peter Riley this is because the, the general tone is like in Rory's piece is Ireland are balancing trying to develop certain players with yeah. the value of winning a test match on New Zealand soil but two weeks ago Ireland R- Rugby Media received a group message from All Blacks Communications Department Joe Schmidt would not be doing any interviews before the <laughs> test series uh, they were shocked Peter O'Reilly <laughs> didn't say uh, we were reminded that Schmidt's new role as All Blacks selector slash analyst that's his official title does not begin until after the Irish Rugby Tour in time for the Rugby Championship. He says perhaps not, but this has not stopped the cult of Joe growing in New Zealand because, in effect, Joe Schmidt's been involved with the Blues of late. Uh, again, not no precise coaching title, but he's done an extraordinary job. There's been a massive upturn in the Blues play since Schmidt went in. And now Ian Foster, who's under massive pressure because obviously Ireland beat them in November and France beat them as well. And so he's been spending the months trying to convince Schmidt to get involved. I'd say there's a degree of like, get in so he doesn't take over <laughs> if this Your goes uh, badly. And so the sense uh, Peter Riley has is that once you get Schmidt involved, he just won't be able to help himself then. And yeah. he said that's what happened with yeah. the Blues, that, you know, he just went in initially as like a consultant, but pretty soon he's down there doing the warm ups oh. in his tracksuit, yeah. you know, affecting Every everything. Detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. uh, So Schmidt's going to be there in some capacity and presumably heavily involved but uh, won't be speaking to the media or won't be to the fore but you would anticipate he'll have his fingerprints over everything but that is kind of an interesting subplot yeah and as I said Roy Roy Keane's piece kind of summarises all the things you know how do you how do you prepare for the next World Cup and this test series yeah. with with an ageing you know with some ageing players with front row you know there's all kind of a lot of people rehearse the same kind of yeah I think that there's really a lot of yeah, um, sorry yeah, and that piece does summarise the, the does, themes yeah. which is that there's there's potentially huge upside in this tour for, for the Irish set up you know with that whole pre-World Cup momentum and you know imagine another milestone would be win, uh, winning in, in New Zealand but there seems to be huge downsides as well because 
you go to New Zealand and you're not at yourself and they're absolutely at themselves, you can get absolutely yeah. murdered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that's all that, which I, I kind of ha- can't help but feel to have such huge, such potentially big things um, riding on what is an end of season tour. Like, I just cannot get my head around rugby being played in July. I know. And I know it's not July. I know it's July over there, but it's winter over there. But it, it just sometimes feel our summer tour guys going out. It always feels a bit like, oh God, yeah. here we go. <laughs> you know, like in November. You know, yeah. which well, is probably and, and what you're the hitting them at the time of year when they're much fitter. Yeah. So that's the thing. It's, it's it just like always seems like a tough ask. It you know, is, and that's uh, and everybody's. There's loads of people pointing out what's happened before, and is the your the first test is your best chance to beat them, even though we haven't won there in years. Yeah. Um, but. If it goes wrong, usually everything. The well, they're they're come saying off. you're a long way from home. It's no, it's no coincidence. <laughs> Especially that New Zealand, do they like to point that out? Yeah. <laughs> they're saying in the papers as well. It's no coincidence that New Zealand have chosen Eden Park for the first yeah. game where they yeah. haven't been beaten since '94. Yeah. So they recognise yeah. as well. Let's win the first game and then we're up and running. I'm curious uh, for both your thoughts on what we have here in Luther Burrell because this could potentially become an inquiry akin to what we saw in cricket in rugby. Uh, Luther Burrell has played for England. He's 32 years of age. He'd be a very well-known player. And he's been interviewed exclusively here by Nick Simon in the Mail on Sunday about racism in the dressing room. And the initial part of the interview is how uh, Nick Simon had a phone call with Luther Burrell about racism in rugby more generally a while back. And his answer was, it's rife. And then they went for an off the record dinner a few months later and Luther Burrell talked about what he had experienced and has now decided to go public with it. Mm. And he talks about how I've been nervous doing this. They met in a coffee shop. I didn't sleep much last night. This is a scary subject to broach. I don't know how it will be received. And he talked about his dad, you know, wondering, are you going to do it, not do it? And he said, I'm going to do it. He stresses he's not going to name names. He says, this isn't a witch hunt. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. A lot of what's said isn't even malicious, but it's become normal and it needs to be addressed. And he talked about in part, what helped him make up his mind up about going public was the thought of his mixed-race children being on the receiving end of what he's received. So, for instance, uh, Burrell's been in the professional game since 06. He said, um, things get said in jest without any thought every week, every fortnight. Comments about bananas when you're making a smoothie in the morning. Comments about fried chicken when you're out <coughs> for dinner. I've heard things you wouldn't expect to hear 20 years ago. We had a hot day at training and I told one of the lads to put on their Factor 50. Someone came back and said, you don't need it, Luth. Put your carrot oil on. Then another lad jumps in and says, no, 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 he'll need it for where his shackles were as a slave. Excuse my language, but where the F does that come from? Some people shake their heads, others laugh along with it. People greet you as, what's up my N? It's not meant in a bad way, but when is it going to change? It's a very, very raw subject. Over the past few years, it has happened a lot. That's the environment. It's normalised because I'm allowed... Sorry, it's normalised because I allowed it to become normalised. I'd laugh it off. I've been a coward by not speaking up. Over the years, I've become thicker skinned. And he said he's at an age now at 32 where he feels he can speak up. He says if you're 20 and there's a hierarchy, you're just told, you know, be quiet. And so it's hard for a younger player to speak up. He says, after a few beers, I have said to fellow teammates, mate, you've got to stop saying that. But it never changed anything. You just get, we love you really, mate, back. If I was 10 years younger, no way would I be sat here doing this you want to fit in he says I'm sure there are clubs that don't have a problem but rugby clubs don't have HR departments uh, like the real world um, yeah one of the lines he says rugby is a high testosterone environment with a lot of big personalities like I can't believe those comments I mean I just I can't credit that adult people would use those comments do you know what I mean it's in, it's just beyond my comprehension and all you can and now we don't know whether they're 
fellow club players, fellow schools players, fellow internationals. But either way, I just can't believe that anybody thinks like that. And it's just absolutely shocking. We were just talking about and saying that, you know, maybe maybe you will have a situation like cricket in England where mm. it might spark an investigation or certainly he says he won't name names. Mm. Um, there are some really interesting things. He, he he like it smacks of that, you know, entitled, you know, that um, entitled obnoxiousness that just comes from people who are, you know, I just see themselves as superior to everybody else. Um, and you know, he says it's de- rugby definitely has a class issue and he talks about it as Genge, you know, he's saying he says he makes that point. He says about Genge getting messages calling him a N-word mm. would Mario Toje, you know, and that are, that always has been like Mario. It's always been pointed out Mario Toje comes from that private school background, you know, but whatever or wherever people come from, it's just shocking. You know, he talks about growing up in a council estate in Huddersfield and uh, his parents worked exceptionally hard and I wasn't given any freebies. Do football changing rooms have this type of stuff being around? No, because it's far more divorce. I actually disagree with that. I suspect football, I, I suspect there is some element of it and we see this racism in, in, in British football. So we, we know there is an element of it. But is there is there more a class element to this, you know, and is racism more pronounced um, for that reason, perhaps, you know, in English uh, rugby? But I, I, I find it shocking, really well, shocking. It, he does talk about class as well. He said, you see the rugby culture and you see the cricket culture. There are a very similar class guys from these feeder schools at the stuff that came out from cricket it's recently didn't yeah. surprise me, he says. Yeah, it's that privileged entitled thing of, you know, we're going to always follow this course in life because we have, you know, we have private educations. You know, this will take us certain places in our lives. And so we're we, for some reason we can we can make comments, you know, and, and judge other people. I think what's re- I really think what's interesting is when the f- I don't know if you noticed this towards the end of this interview. And he says, I'll tell you what's funny. All the black people I spoke to about this, in other words, about talking out about this, said, uh, do it. The white people were all supportive, but they said things like, oh, do you do you not want to get your contract sorted first? Yeah. I think that's mm. very interesting. I think this blows up massively now. If there was a Westminster committee looking into what happened in cricket, I don't yeah. see how they can sit in yeah. their hands with this. Yeah, I think, you know, he, he refers to the, the rugby culture and you see the cricket culture. There are very similar class guys from those feeder schools. The stuff that came out of cricket re- uh, recently didn't surprise me. I think, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a further example of what you get when you have the, the dangers of a small, sort of culturally narrow caste um, involved in something. I think what, he, what he's meaning about the football environment is that is, it is a much more diverse... More diverse, uh, yeah, But probably yeah, at an institutional level, I'm sure, yes. you know, there's still, you still have so few black uh, people in, black people in positions of uh, authority and, and management. Yeah. Um, but here, like, it smacks of that sort of, you know, Boris Johnson talking about, you know, um, watermelon smiles and, you know, p- picking innies, like that sort of, like, you know, post-imperial, um, low, like, low-brow, um, you know, public school humour yeah. that is a way of underlining that sense of cultural superiority that, that does seem to come, thr- uh, come through. Like, it, it's interesting. It is an interesting piece because you, you do read it and you're shocked. And, it's, it, and then they go on to talk about, it. like, is there, is, does the class element uh, uh, explain it? Or is it the fact that maybe English rugby is still large, a majority sort of a, a quite privileged from, sport? From I, I mean, I don't know, yeah, but to yeah. back to your point, Joe, like once you start and think with the cricket story was once you start picking away at what's going on here it's very hard not to for this to end up to be a root and branch study of what is going on because if if this is going on and there's a, you know a guy who's been 
I mean, he's finished now. He seems to be finished now in English club rugby and maybe looking to play in Japan and obviously feels ready to come out mm. and talk about it. There's clearly loads of other players have just said, oh, I'm not dealing with it. And that, that line about get your contract sorted first and keep your head down, make your living. Like that's the, that's been the sort of the, the fuel for, you know, people putting up with crap for in all sorts of you know areas be it's you know uh, gender race or, or whatever down through the years um, so if this is something that you know once once sponsors start getting involved yeah. in what's going on here this could end up you know gathering momentum mm. huge momentum and it's you know it's interesting the only as you said Kleene you wonder what's the perspective of those who are doing it the only glimpse we get of that is when he says and this is very similar to the cricket conversation which happened is when he mentions after a few beers he has said to teammates mate you've got to stop saying that their response is we love you really mate so there's this sense almost of actually not only is it just banter it's almost even a step further of brotherhood that I can say this to you yeah 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 yeah. because we're such good mates that seems to be the perception that he's on the receiving end of I think yeah and his and his own openness and his own uh, you know integration is, is really reflected because he says at the end of it, he says I want to look back and, and, and he wants to talk because he said my, my son or my daughter yeah. might end up in one to be professional rugby players you know and it's very interesting Maggie Alfonsi has said in England that she intends running for um, mm. the, the, the head of the RFU over there towards 2025 which is really interesting a black woman yeah. how interesting would that be well I, I, put into, <coughs> I put his name into Google News this morning when I first read this to see what the uptake was and straight away the Daily Telegraph on their website had Luther Burrell I've had the n-word used to me mm. Mm. this thing will be huge in, this will be dominating in 24 yeah. hours time so yeah. I and it is, it is that thing that you talk about that dressing room culture where it's sort of a the, the people you know dishing it out think well I'll tell you how you should feel about this sure. it's just banter and you know you should you know you shouldn't be offended by this and you know that won't uh, that won't stand up for long mm. well that's an exclusive it's in the mail on Sunday by Nick Simon and it's Luther Burrell the English international uh, still only 32 years of age very much a current rugby player and it seems he's gone forward and back for several months about whether or not to speak publicly mm. and he most certainly has so it's a two page spread there in the mail on Sunday. We'll take a very short break. Back with more on the Sunday papers in just a moment. You're welcome back. 58 minutes on the clock. Armagh back to within three of Galway. Galway won 12. Armagh 12 points is where we are. We'll be over to James O'Donoghue if anything significant happens over the closing 10 minutes or so. We have Clean Foley and Tommy Martin here in the studio. We'll move to GEA then for a moment. So uh, Paul Kimmage is uh, writing about GA interviews on the back of a piece Sean McGoldrick <coughs> wrote last week in the Sunday World and it struck Paul Kim as he was out following Shane Larry at the US Open and who popped up there only Paul Mannion who actually was on the show uh, this week ironically uh, because he's out playing for Boston Donegal and he was following Shane Larry around and Paul Kimmage was kind of it was striking him they'd never crossed each other's paths and it was only as Mannion's retired now you kind of hear from him a bit more and he was saying on the back of McGoldrick's claim that this has been the worst year in Sean McGoldrick's career covering GA for interviews I think the Sunday World uh, thus far have had three interviews across the entire summer and that is the way it's going and even ahead of the quarterfinals there weren't press days or certainly none that the Sunday World were invited to and we've bemoaned this direction I suppose for quite some time it would strike me the pandemic has been used mm. you know never let a good crisis go to waste as the way mm. to just almost phase these press days out totally like they just haven't resumed post pandemic 
Well, as long as I've been guesting on this slot, we've been talking about this <laughs> issue. But actually, I was flicking through the Sunday Independent from the front and reading the GA coverage and getting past the match reports from yesterday into the previews from today. And there's a piece about Mayo, <coughs> the general piece, uh, Dermot Crow about Mayo and lack of forwards, which talks to former Mayo players. Tommy Conlon has a piece about the tactical aspects of a Colm O'Rourke general preview. And I was just thinking, God, there's no... Uh, you know, you never get a big interview, like a big, you know, piece, like you never get a big, you know, a player posing, you know, in his farm or in his factory or, you know, in his office or whatever, the week before a game talking or whenever it was and talking about his hopes and dreams, like you are certainly rarely get it. And then I literally turned the page and actually across my mind, the famous uh, David Walsh uh, story that one of his famous stories back with the uh, Irish press days when he, he went, went to basically uh, embedded himself with the Offaly, uh, Offaly footballers before the 1982 All-Ireland final. It's kind of the seminal sort of moment of G- uh, media GA relations and it's been downhill ever since. And I, it did cross my mind. I literally turned the page and it's what Kim was just talking about. And I, co- I couldn't be in more agreement and it just strikes me so much. Going to Croke Park yesterday and uh, just how like absolutely nothing against any of the players and they're all we, we know they all have fascinating stories and interesting perspectives because whenever they, we do get out get to talk to them and hear from them that, that's all the case but how distant they all are you know they all yes. come running out and they do you do feel a certain detachment of them from from them whereas if you read your paper you know or whatever way you consume your your uh, media the morning of a, of a big match and there's a, a feature with this guy and this guy from from the other team then you go to the match and you have a sense of there's a whole other context, a whole whole greater engagement. Mm. Like, look, it's it's as I say, it's it's an old argument that's been on for years. I think it's incredibly, and not just from I'm not speaking from media bias, incredibly um, potent, long-term damaging for the GEA. I just think, I just think from uh, uh, institutional level, they need to get a handle on this and say, listen, yeah. we need to do a press conference, a manager and a player, some way before every big game. It's tied in with uh, revenues. It's tied in with GPA funding. It's yeah. there. It's not the end of the world. It's not going to kill you. We need it for the promotion of our games. And if you're going to have this season where the early part of the season is running, uh, competing with Champions League and uh, Heineken Cup and all, and all that sort of stuff, you need to start you know, tooling up for that battle because what they're doing at the moment is... The yeah, football season seems to have just whizzed by. It's yeah, just well, I, look, this year, is, I just... I don't know how anybody's going to reflect on this year really because so much has been squished into so little time that there isn't even room for half the stuff that's there anyway. But they do it. I don't know, Tommy. Look, I don't know. Is it just journalists are obsessed with this? Um, Do do the public really care? I feel, I think think there's a disconnect with fans, I think. I think that's what I think people miss is that they... They don't see they they only see them now as intercounty automatons, if you like, mm. who have this life that they live as well as trying to do. And so many of them are students um, and that there is a little bit of a disconnect there. I, I think there is that. And and in that, I think what's lost maybe is the is the is an appreciation for who they are as people and what they have to combine their their professional GA, mm. you know, training with. That's what I think is maybe lost is that, that it actually disconnects you from how bloody hard they work and how hard their lives are. I think that's that's what's been lost. I think that's a real pity. Mm. But they still do stuff for sponsors. And the problem with that is the same people are thrown out by sponsors and they're the big names and we know so much about them already. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I, but I, I, I agree with you, but I think sometimes maybe that's just a journalistic obsession that we have. But I don't I'd think love I'd to know what the public think on it. Yeah, but I, I think the public will still support their county, love their county. But they will. You, you wouldn't be as, as aware of it as a fan that like you don't... 
see or hear that much from from your players. But over time, it's kind of a yeah. boiling a frog thing that you don't really realise till you sort of don't start stop caring about things as much. You know that yeah. you know that sort of level of engagement. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, I, I just yeah t- definitely think with the with, with the level of competition like. To, like working in, in sort of the, the day-to-day media, like you do spend a lot of your time saying, well, you know, such and such a manager, Jurgen Klopp said this and that sets the agenda for, for this game and he came back and said that. And li- like it is regarded as sort of tittle-tattle and kind of, you know, a, a lot of kind of, uh, you know, ma- it's not as significant as, as the matches themselves, but it generates buzz, it generates context, up, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's part of the, the old, you know, the boxing fight game press you, conference where the yeah. players if you had McGinney and Park well, Joyce I was just about across to say, the papers just on about to say that, but yeah. actually McGinney and Park Joyce it's a brilliant example of it because there's been a few pieces today's papers about McGinney and Park Joyce about who they were as players you know their personalities how how interesting they were and how interesting it is now yeah. that they're both involved at this stage right mm. and and you know, in 10 years time, if there's an intercounty player who's a manager, you, you won't really, I don't know, have that insight into their personality, no. I don't think, because of the way it's gone. Mm. There's, that, there's that for sure. And Donaghy there standing beside McGinney. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I don't know who the modern day fellas are because McGinney, you know, Roy Keane-esque, you would think, did nothing with the media. But I vividly remember McGinney with BBC Ulster and it was shown on BBC. He did a thing where like he let the TV crew come with him while he was doing his training and when he was doing his shopping and he spent an ungodly amount of money on fruit and vegetables each week <laughs> and it just gave you yeah. look he didn't bear his soul but he gave you enough to God I'm interested in that fella. I always remember was it one, the one about was it not the McIntyre tunes or somebody else who they, they used to take the butter off their sandwiches you know after training <laughs> that's how that's how obsessive they were but little details like yeah. that that tell you so much but you just resonate. don't get them anymore they do resonate yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing I suppose is I don't, and I don't have a lot of sympathy for managers because I think in the GA the problem is that a lot of managers think they're managing Man United and they're yeah. not, and they think they're doing a professional job in terms of media and they're not, yeah. um, just because they don't have the training even to think you know to do it the yeah. right way. But there has been such a proliferation of media as well, you know, that things have changed. You know, in Parry yeah, Joyce, that's true. Parry Joyce and McGinney and those were probably towards the end of you know, old media and now you've got so many different forms of media. And then as well, players can now tell their own stories on their own social media. Mm. So we may all be Mm. obsolete in a couple more years time. But, you know, go back to the original (laughs) point. (laughs) I don't think it's doing any good for... I don't either. I mean, look, you look at the the big story of this GA season, apart from the actual games themselves, was the handshake and yeah, yeah it is like as with Premier League handshakes of different forms down down the years it, it is a ridiculous thing to be getting in and out about but people are interested in other people and we look at the personalities involved and we're fascinated by that's why people talk about you know oh let, we want to analyse the game and you know the, the granular detail of analysis we, yeah but we want to talk about the personalities as well because we're human beings and, and the rivalry you see Henry Shefflin and Brian Cody and there's clearly something going on there like that's incredibly fascinating yeah. thing well, I, to, and it sets up totally. you know the whole context for the I always think there's a thing uh, akin to when people you know do you want Joe Brawley uh, in full flow or do you want like a good solid analysis of what the corner forward did and there's that thing in Malcolm Gladwell where if you ask people what kind of coffee they want they say I like rich dark coffee whereas the blind <laughs> tests have shown people like weak <laughs> milky coffee and that is we want we want talk to me about going around about Cody and Shefflin yeah, don't yeah, tell yeah, me yeah. what the full yeah. forward but, but was actually, doing actually and yeah. also I think the really interesting thing and that whole debate about the Sunday game and all the rest now is really interesting as well because you now can get 
625 podcasts who give you the analysis. Mm. Loads of former players talking, loads of... You can get that analysis somewhere else, but if you're trying to produce, you know, a, a something that appeals to the mm. general public, as you said, that you have mm. loads of human interest in, as well as the, as the sport end of it, it's a different thing. I draw the line. I absolutely draw the line. I'm sorry, at Desi Farr last night being asked about his captain and his co-captain, I think, missing. And he's interviewed after the game, and they haven't played, and he's asked... What are their injuries? Right. And he says, I couldn't possibly say. Was that what the comment was? Oh, I don't uh, know. Oh, Philip yeah, Lannigan, you played it earlier this morning, I think. It was, I think I heard a clip on the, on the radio this morning. Even Philip though it's Lannigan common knowledge, it's hamstring. Yeah. And he can't Has confirm. to confirm, yeah, I'd prefer not to say. Prefer not to say. Oh, now, please, what, yeah. what benefit of that? Because all that's going to create now is a vacuum for journalists to go chasing all week to ask everybody. Like, you see, this is what I'm saying about how they don't, I just don't think they get it, you that, know. That's, that's only. Silly. Yeah, that's that doesn't help stuff. anything. Yeah, that yeah. doesn't help anybody. If anything you know? does create a vacuum, do you start a WhatsApp rumor about someone? Yeah, now, you know? now the WhatsApps yeah. are going to go crazy, and this, you know, no there'll be even more rumor. So, yeah. And I just, mm. I, this is where I think that it's it's gone so far the wrong the other direction. I agree with you, Tommy. It's just gone nuts now. You I know? know. I was up in Derry with Tony Scullion and Ender oh, uh, Gormley on on uh, Wednesday. Like there was such a richness <laughs> to their stories oh. and the way they did things. Oh. And uh, look, it, it's not what it was, and of course. We've got to move with the times, but man, it was better. <laughs> it's just more, it was more romantic for and it was yeah. for, everybody. for everybody. It was for the better. consumers as well. And it's interesting, um, Pat Spillane has a piece today in the Sunday World about uh, going to the, to the matches, to, you know, and his son playing for Sligo. And just, uh, he says, everybody he met in Crow Park that day at the Talton Cup finals said, What's Brolly really like? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Brolly talked to you. Isn't it so funny? Like, yeah. that's still what people keep asking yeah. them. We're human beings, you know. Yeah, like, and, we and love that, watching that the games. Yeah. The talk. between people. Yeah, and so I, think, I think as, look, the nature of uh, progress is that these, they, they are a lot more outside. They're not going for a rake of pints tonight for the game and smoking, you know, smoking a, a Benson and Hedges at halftime. You know, <laughs> they're not those romantic, romantic sort of characters. But they are human beings. They are interesting guys. They're funny guys. They're, you know, they've got interesting careers different challenges in, in life and anytime they do come forward tends to be they tend to be well, really, interesting. really interesting and, and but their stories get told by professional people who know how to tell a story and you know yeah. it's yeah. it just means when you're watching them you're that bit extra yeah. invested yeah. I think is the that's what it comes short down to, version yeah. uh, so uh, two pieces on the FINA decision Ian yeah. Herbert first of all it gives an insight into how the decision is made. Eamon Sweeney is more giving his verdict on where he thinks sport is moving when it comes to trans athletes. So Ian Herbert is talking about the FINA vote. It was on in Budapest at the uh, Puskas Arena. 152 individuals uh, were voting on behalf of their various countries' bodies. And so uh, the FINA play in Budapest, he said it secured a 71.5% vote in favour of the uh, policy on eligibility, which effectively banned any transgender athletes who had gone through puberty. So they would have had to complete their gender transition by the age of 12. Otherwise, they're banned from competition. 13.1% abstained. I think that's really, Mm. really interesting. It is. And also it was pointed out, and and this is the reason why uh, Nikki Dryden, who's a Canadian former Olympic swimmer turned human rights lawyer, she thinks this is going to be appealed because it would seem over in Budapest that the people who voted were given 14 minutes to read the technical paper that FINA provided them with. pages of it. Yeah, so she says the whole thing around how the policy was passed is to be challenged. This is not the end of it. This will go all the way up to CAS. So it certainly looks, by the way FINA presented it, and I can't say for certain, but it looks like they were very much of a mind to 
uh, have the vote passed. And well, yeah, it is. It is. It was such a dramatic decision, and it is. This is interesting insight into how it was, how it was made, if you like, which you, we, people may not have got initially. And mm. um, I think it's very worth it, it. Worth it. But to show how small the sport world is, and this element of the sport world at that high level is as well, it is interesting because you've one person saying, "Yeah, this is going to get appealed in Cass," and then in the article he points out, Fina's confident because the exec, it's it's dir- executive director Brent Nowitzki who led Sunday's presentation, is a former managing counsel at CAS, while the expert FINA has engaged on the policy include James Drake OC, a London-based former CAS arbitrator. Mm. So, you know, anybody who's involved mm. at this level in sport, they, they, mm. know the, they know the scene and sometimes they're very involved in other elements of the scene. So that's interesting. Um, but it, 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 it does give some insight on, I think the 13.1% abstained is very interesting because this is such a vexed and difficult question. And it's... Eamon Sweeney, you know, I think probably hits the nail on the head um, in one, even just one sentence in his piece. He, he does it, which is he says the idea of privileging inclusion over fairness may seem strange. Surely competitive integrity trumps all. But the issue isn't quite that simple. Yeah, know? he's not in favour of this ban, Eamon Sweeney, on the back page of the Sunday Independent. And it does seem hockey, triathlon are all... And but moving to is, make a move yeah. now. Sebco is very much. Yeah, yeah, he says Seb Crow's line is where, we, where we're making a judgment about fairness or inclusion. I will always fall down on the side of fairness, but others take a different view. And that's again. But that's, that's again the summarising the, the nub of it, isn't it? And I, 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 I remember um, being involved in a discussion with this a couple of years ago, and um, a, a trans woman said to me that one of her problems is that she just wants to play sport at a community level. Uh-huh. But that the rules that apply to her are the rules that apply to sport at an mm. elite level within her sports governing body. And that's interesting, even mm. isn't it? I, that had never really struck me. Um, and I also somebody in a very quite in one of the Irish governing bodies told me that they had women playing trans women playing sport, but it hadn't been officially passed by the NGB, but it was agreed between clubs at the level that they were playing at. Mm they were not deemed to be a danger because it was it was a contact sport. So it's just such a complicated, you know, complicated yes, system. Yeah. I think Amos Williams does a very good job, but I don't know what you yeah, think. Yeah, I think it's a, a really good, good job, job um, because it's two, there are two sort of different moral universes sort of against each other here. There's, there's sport and like sport is a bubble in so many ways with its own um, moral context and ethical context, as we know from all the other stories around, you know, the the human rights, etc. But then, yeah. you know, <clears throat> we tend to sort of get really narrow and say, like, well, this is the this is the way things are in sport, and that's where you know the fairness. I did, the idea of fairness is fundamental to uh, anybody who's you know takes part or watches or covers or is in, remotely interested in, is in sport. That it's it's you know it's the old Corinthian ideal, like, but inclusion is. You know, underpinning uh, human rights uh, value of our, our our greater society that we liked, and we see it we see it um, you know getting attacked in this in the US at the moment. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. in a bit. And, and what's great about Sweeney's piece is he talks about how you know those on on the other side of of the um, argument they're they're not always taking a, a cold and, and impartial view on it. That you know many of the same states that are now. Uh, in which abortion is, is now uh, illegal in the states have also um, acted to um, to follow up on this uh, uh, and banning trans uh, athletes uh, as well. In other words, it's a culture war um, uh, tool as well. Um, 
the the like the you know, so come back to the sort of ethics of sport and I know like does reference to uh, Dr. Ross Tucker, mm. who you know like uh, Joe, you'll probably be able to put his view into it a lot better than yes. me because I know he's been on the show quite a lot. But it, you know, I think it's that that you know, male female is a classification as such in in the same way that other classifications within sport, and therefore you need to have a line. Yeah. Where that classification he, is drawn, he, he said it's like akin to why we different weight categories in in boxing. It's mm. to somehow level the playing field. It's so that if if otherwise, if we just had the human race Olympics, the women wouldn't win mm. most of the events. Is the is the truth? Uh, from memory, Ross Tucker effectively made the point that uh, sport really has just run away from this for as long as mm. it possibly can. And the International Olympic Committee, in the last uh, couple of months, last November, the International Olympic Committee got together and said. This is an off-the-record summary, but they said this is way too complicated for this us. This is a huge let's just let hot potato. Let's just yeah. spin it back each, out to the NGBs. Yeah, National each individual bodies. sport. Yeah. You figure it out and we'll be right behind you. Yeah. Up to you guys. And so sport is now grappling. That's why swimming are having this mm. vote and the other mm. sports are having this vote. Ross Tucker said, and it's a point lots won't like and lots will agree with, but he said from his point of view, uh, this old tactic of reducing testosterone after puberty does not work the residual benefits endure. And so he said, sport is now going to have to decide if it wants to be about, and Eamon Sweeney uses the same point here, is sport going to be about fairness or is sport going to prioritise inclusivity? Mm. Because he said on the fairness point, for him, he said it's not even complicated science. Mm. That it's not complicated science that the advantages once you've gone through puberty are not reduced significantly or to the extent required with, with testosterone levels reduced. So he said from a scientific point of view, this is very clear cut. But if we talk about sport in terms of society, what it's meant to represent, then that's where we have to have an incredibly complicated conversation. And, I, and, and you do and you do, and I followed Ross Tucker for a long time, you know, because just on sports science alone. Yeah. But there are also sports scientists who who say differently sure. from him. And that's what mm. I find very confusing well, is that there are different there are different experts saying different things and also saying different things in relation to, you know, endurance sport and power sport and mm. different things. And that's where it's the masses count. What chance do we have if the science yeah, disagrees? Yeah, you know? yeah, and I heard Ken Early make the point during the week, for instance, like, you know, the, the masses can be swayed by things like the visuals of Leah Thomas, the swimmer, who was head and shoulders literally above her competition winning and instinctively saying, well, that can't That's be right. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know about the science or the power output or what's happened there. We just don't we, we're not scientifically trained to make those decisions. Um, and I, and I, yet it's been it has certainly become weaponized and an area yeah. where I think uh, some of probably the political uh, testing has realised that it is an area where the general public look at the Leah Thomas example and say, oh, yeah, that can't be right. And they're on board with reducing trans rights in that sphere. Yeah, so and that's that becomes almost, uh, let's yeah, another front on the whole of oh, society's gone to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. You know, we need yeah. to roll back you know, and everything's been granted. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're, they're probably ploughing money and he that And, and Eamon Sweeney quotes the Laurel Hubbard, you know, the New Zealander, the weightlifter who yeah. went and finished last, you know, as it happened in the Olympics in that category. I saw that. But then the yeah. counter argument could be Laurel Hubbard potentially took the place well, of a New Zealand athlete who whose dream it was to absolutely, go to the Absolutely, absolutely. So th- that's, th- that's where the complications is. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. We'll, we'll come back to this conversation. <gasps> James O'Donoghue, we're just going to line him up now. We'll get the thumbs up from the lads when we can go to James because Armagh have equalised in this game in the 80th minute <laughs> and it has gone full time. James O'Donoghue, it's gone full time. We have a draw here. We do indeed. There's just a bit kicking off here as the teams are going into the tunnel. Armagh got an outrageous equaliser to Reno O'Neill. 
there was a foul over on the Cusack stand it must have been 45 metres out Reen O'Neill put it down and he has slapped it over everybody was jumping fist pumping even down on the sideline from the management now the players are going in the tunnel and there's a full on brawl going on over there this is going to be a very interesting second half but that game absolutely took off with 10 minutes 10 minutes left to play Kieran Donahue's in there trying to separate the players this is a proper old argy-bargy outside the tunnel it there's is. players on the ground and it's uh, this is ugly I think what happened was Armagh were not happy with some of the the Galway play acting I'll say they were trying to waste a bit of time they were going down with injuries it left a bit of a sour taste so as soon as that ball was slapped over by Reno O'Neill which was an unbelievable score by the way all the Armagh players were kind of pushing the, their Galway opponents and pointing oh, at them kind of saying that's oh, what you get J- James this is getting very ugly Comer there Comer there he's been gouged I would say oh he has God. been gouged and I don't yeah. know who did it but there was a hand in his face that properly went for both his eyes and that has Jeez. kicked off further okay. around now that whoever the alleged offender was he was several Galway players then went after him haven't seen what happened Kieran Donny was over trying to separate it there will be repercussions from 100%. these few moments of madness it's still going on isn't it there as they're it going is, down the tunnel they've just gone in I think you're a bit behind us yeah but they've gone in so both teams are on separate sides of that entrance so I, I'd imagine that both sides are going to be separated inside but it was very ugly there I'd be surprised if 15 on 15 came out in the second half because there was there were two players on the ground tussling maybe five minutes before full time for quite a protracted period as well the linesman was yes. just standing over them waiting for them to finish that was Shane Walsh and James Morgan that was going on for a while I think Shane Walsh was playing kind of left half forward and James Morgan was stopping his runs eventually he was booked and I think the Shane Walsh might have tried to go at him again just to see could he get him could he get him into a bit of trouble I think there was kind of things like that going on for the whole second half it just turned a bit cynical I think that's why Armagh were upset now they did react badly there though but there is going to be an edge to this game when the when the extra time starts wow there sure will I mean what does a referee do in that instance I wonder do they go down and review footage or do they hand out red cards or yellow cards it remains to be seen we have extra time here as well I mean that's the yeah. other aspect I think it's whatever they can see between the umpires the linesmen and the referee see if they could see anything often in these situations so much is going on how would you pinpoint one or two incidents you could send off two of one team and there could be something behind your back there could be four red card offences behind your back for the other team so it's very hard to get a fair result out of this but I mean you'd have to say that Armagh probably did start that well it certainly looked at it from here it is over on the Cusack side we're in the Hogan here so it's hard to see exactly yeah. but oh it's going to be a difficult one for the referee to see what he does here I'd be shocked if there was 15 not 15 coming out so your sense is Armagh frustration levels grew as Galway tried to as most teams would I suppose slow the game down see out the clock I think so I think so and let's face it Armagh were absolutely dead and buried until that second goal went in they were in serious trouble so for them to to actually get a result was incredible so their tails are up their gander is up they got probably got an unbelievable burst of emotion there at the end and they said you know they're going to take it out in their direct opponent but then it just spilled over I tell you what the CCCC is gearing up for the week of its life I tell you that for nothing whatever the fallout they'll is they'll all be is. rescinded anyway <laughs> they'll all be rescinded yeah I wonder so just again sum up because we're going to go back to the papers here in a moment and you can draw breath just sum up from Galway four, five, six points up I think it was at one stage or you can give us the, the, the most they were ahead by and then there were eight minutes of added time 
Yes. Ha- what the hell happened, I suppose, is the question here. Galway went up six points. Six points, And they right. were absolutely in control. Shane Walsh was, had the ball on his toe. He was kind of drawing fellas in, slipping it over the top, and they got a couple of points um, through Conroy and through Kieran Malloy. At that stage, the game was over nearly. But Rafferty came out. He's put in an outside of the left from halfway into the into the, the penalty box really and Reen O'Neill has jumped and he has caught an absolute beaut over Sean Kelly he could have marked it he didn't he came down and he's fisted the ball across the square hoping that someone will palm it in there was legs being thrown at it there was hands being thrown at it and in the end Connor Torbett somehow manages to kick it along the ground In it got a deflection and went into the roof of the net but then it was game on there's only three points in it so I mean that was the real turning point but You've no idea how impressive that point from Reno O'Neill was to draw it. They were a point down. They got fouled over by the Cusack stand. Everyone was kind of... The, the stadium was kind of humming. Is he going short? What's left? He didn't take any notice of anything. He got his mark, put it down on the ground and slapped it over. It had yards to spare. It was an absolute worldly of a score. So they deserved the draw in the end, but you'd have to say Armagh did not come out in that second half and play well at all. They mm. were absolutely haunted to get the result there. Extra time. What time is your train home? Seven o five. 7.05. 7.05. Best of luck with that. <laughs> uh, Once the Kerry game goes ahead on time, we're okay. I think everything's pushed back now because they have to give them time to warm up, so it remains to be seen. Or cool down, as the case may be. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't bring those two teams out too quickly. You'd say, take an mm. extra five in the dressing room. Uh, we're reviewing the Sunday yeah. papers today. That gouge will be big talking point tomorrow I don't, I'm don't. i not even sure was it a player I don't know who it was but a hand went in on Comer's face didn't it for sure I missed it I know I saw oh, Arsene Wenger over there <laughs> but I did see I saw um, one of the Galway players indicating that somebody had been gouged with his fingers he was actually pointing to his well, hand I, so I don't know it was, it was that's Comer that's all I can say we'll was, see it in slow motion later yeah it was Comer and just don't wrap this up and get over to Crow Park now sorry it was, <laughs> it was Comer and a hand came in on his face absolutely and, and you could see the reaction then of everybody so um, it's <gasps> As bad as I've it, seen in this in a long time, some, some bad stuff. And it's going to take what was, uh, what obviously was unbelievable, exciting finish to it. Like it'll just be the main yes. source of discussion now. Yes. Are you going to Crow Park? Do you well, have to? I just might get there now. No, okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, so sorry, we're in the midst of. It's a kind of a difficult space to have this conversation yeah, yeah. married to that. Making me feel but, very redundant here as a sports writer. We, <laughs> Far we, from the action. We, we, <laughs> talking about people it. Listen to story this, of our lives. People listen to this on podcasts anyway. I know. I so. Yeah. So we are trying, uh, I, the problem we're trying to balance um, inclusivity with fairness is everybody's going to have a different perspective on that, not least the female athletes, uh, those of us looking on. And the other point Ross Tucker made is in certain sports, and it's not discussed in Eamon Sweeney's piece at all, is the element of safety. So yeah. Ross Tucker was making the point that at the moment, at the moment, you could have a 20 stone male rugby player transition and very very quickly be participating in the female rugby game and that poses in his opinion significant risk equally in boxing you could have in theory and extreme examples often make for bad case law and and actually bad extremes have been used this here is in what's this happening exactly yeah. here is but, that it's the extremes but in theory used. you could have Tyson Fury 
transition and very quickly be fighting uh, females in the heavyweight division. And again, does that pose a significant uh, safety risk? Then you have all the complications of, you know, whatever medicine you take to do to to transition. How does that affect you physiologically? And this is where all the arguments come in. Uh, One of the interesting things he says is, for one thing, I'm quoting Amy Sweeney, he said, for one thing, the scientific evidence on trans women's athletic performance is not conclusive. And that's one of the complications. And then for another, he says, the loudest opponents of trans women in women's sport have an unfortunate tendency towards hyperbole. And that's probably there's an element of truth in that as well. Yes, I think, absolutely. You know. And and he quotes Megan Rapinoe, the the American um, uh, soccer player who's gay and is is always um, obviously advocating for LGBT rights. And but she was saying the notion that trans children are being told that they're gross and they're different and evil and sinful and they can't play sports with their friends that they grew up with. Yeah, that's where. You have to. Uh, she's just, and he has the stat that only thirteen percent of trans students in America participate in sport. So he's saying decisions like the one Fina took might be defendable as uh, defended as unavoidable from the point of view of fairness, yeah. but from the point of view of inclusion, they're a tragedy. And you know, and it's that's funny. The, I, that's I, the nub mm. of it. I was talking to someone who was at a uh, soccer coaching, um, yeah, kind of festival, I suppose, and there were maybe a couple of hundred kids there. And as the competition increased, parents started getting more and more involved and all that kind of thing and, and somebody stood up effectively and said of the like 100 kids here none of these kids are playing the Premier League can everyone just relax, relax. you know yeah. and so if you apply that for instance to a trans teenager or somebody in their 20s who just wants to be part of society and let's be honest none of us here are playing in the Premier League mm-hmm. and if it's going to be deemed absolutely safe and in good spirit like that's where the inclusivity argument mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a massive a, importance as opposed to you, Olympic you, Games. Because your your kids probably have trans friends or classmates and don't know any, don't have any problem about that. Yeah, they know better. Is a good line in it. Um, I, I we just we've discussed this. I, I've talked about this for a couple of years, and I find it very very difficult area to. I can't just I just find it difficult to make my mind up on it. But what I do know is that it is something that has become such an issue because gender is so. It's such a movable thing now. You know, trans transitioning there are more there are more people transitioning their gender um and uh and that gender fluidity is so much increased in the next generations so it's not going away it just won't go away and how sport deal with it is is it's a very i it's just a huge debate for me you know because i i i understand as a woman that women's sport have separate have separate categories yeah. so that it's fair to women when they're competing and certain sports <coughs> are running away from this for as long as they can. Mm. Whereas swimming feel, I suspect, on the back of Leah Thomas. Yeah, that was such a high profile case. Yeah, But but other sports are saying like, I would think privately what they're saying is, let's just stay away from this for as long as we can stay away from this. Well, as I said to you, anecdotally, as I've been told, certainly in one sport in Ireland, they they've done it under the radar because it was at, at a community level, at a local level. And they thought, well, everybody here is happy that that this athlete plays here mm-hmm. and it's not a problem for anybody involved. We don't have to go making laws here. Yeah. It's like they're ta- we're talking about that at, at children's level, you see. I, su- I suppose one of the things that strikes me, and I, I'm a bit like you, I read everything I can. I don't understand the science. Yeah. I just, I mean, if someone dumbs it down to me and really gives it to me in a basic form, I can understand the science, but I don't understand nanomoles and testosterone in any real way. Um, my sense is looking at it is, and this is the problem, is that like, there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution to this. I mean, the boxing example that Ross Tucker gave me versus archery. Yeah. They're two sports that, it would strike me, might just have to have very different solutions. 
Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think that the whole like bottom line of this, if there is a bottom line, is that it is complicated, complicated and nuanced. Yeah. yeah. And, and 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 ironically, given how complicated and nuanced and, and and as you say, there's so many different angles you can come at it. You know, like the one you've just mentioned, is that if you are someone who has a clearly defined certain view of this. I just, I just don't know how you can, mm. if you're, unless, uh, unless you're, you know, completely deficient in, you know, in a sense of, of tolerance and an understanding for people on one side, or a sense of understanding of the nuances within sport and the other that that do have to be weighed up as well. Like it's, like it, like there is no other way of. I mean, it's a very good piece. Um, even Sweeney kind of weighs down on the side that includes, uh, you know, inclusion is just about more important. I think if I'm not. Um, <coughs> You know, he says decisions like the one Fina took <coughs> might be defended as unavoidable from the point of view of fairness, but from the point of view of inclusion, they're a tragedy. So that you know, at some a certain point, you know, it's his view that like we have to that that human rights do trump uh, fairness within uh, within sport. But you know, anybody who who comes down and says you know has has a, has a cold black or white view in this, like it just doesn't. You know, it, it doesn't bear, that doesn't um, bear scrutiny. With and, we, and we haven't even looked 